Hello and welcome to this week's episode. I'm Ben Maloney. I'm Hugh McCarran. And I'm Faye Leno. Come take a seat with us on the Mockery Cushion as we discuss the preposterous and unpredictable life of Lord Timothy Dexter. So Ben, who is Lord Timothy Dexter? Well, uh, he was an American, uh, I suppose you could say businessman, born in 1747, so lived mostly in the 18th century. Um, and a lot of people have referred to him as America's richest idiot, America's luckiest idiot. Um, and there's sort of debate over whether he was that or whether he was uh, a genius that's kind of been misunderstood. Um, his whole life. But he was he was born in Massachusetts Bay, um, it, which was one of the crown colonies in British America back in the 18th century. Uh, his He was probably born into a, a poor or relatively, I guess, working class family uh, and dropped out of school at the age of eight. Um, so very young to do to eight. work. Age of eight, yeah. So he was. It was pretty early on. Sure, early process. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would he have learned by age eight? I don't know what they were taught in in eighteen. Yeah, probably more schools, than we it? learn in our whole education, but you know. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah. Yeah. At the age of eight, he dropped out of school, and it was to do manual labour on a farm. So he he was uh, getting into just doing manual work, and by the age of about. Uh, I mean, I've seen conflicting reports, actually, but between 14 and 16, so as a young teenager, he became an apprentice leather dresser. Uh, and, that, and that was a good choice at the time, because although it was considered like a lower class job, really, uh, it was uh, he was working with Moroccan leather, which was in high demand, basically. It was, it was the height of fashion at that point, uh, and there was money in the business. So he, he obviously knew what he was um trying to do. Uh, so he went then into business producing leather gloves and breeches as well. He got into a little bit of trouble, or any oil industry really got into a bit of trouble when in 1773, May of 1773, uh, you might have, might have heard of something called the Boston Tea Party, um, mm. which was an incident when British rule in the area imposed something called taxation without representation basically where which would allow the east india trading company which is obviously a british based company in in the colonies to sell tea exported or imported from china without paying as much tax on it uh, but the american patriots the local patriots opposed this whole thing and what happened was the Boston Tea Party, where they went to the ports, they boarded the ships, the trading company ships, and just threw all of these chests of tea into the into the ocean, into the harbour, uh, in a form of protest, essentially. Um, and that caused a bunch of unrest, um, civil unrest and lack of business and so on. Um, so basically, the the government closed the ports, which is what why the jobs were dwindling. 
But Dexter decided to stay local. Uh, he moved to Charlestown. Um, oh, by the way, the, the area in, of Massachusetts that he's in is called Ipswich, not the English one. And he moved to um, Charlestown, basically just, I was going to say armed with, but possessing a, a bindle, you know, the little thing sticks which you have over your shoulder, which have all your mm. belongings in. So like he, a little cartoon. Yeah like, a, of yeah, like, yeah, like a little cartoon animal. Yeah, uh, like you probably had like a little picnic blanket with this like a red, red check spots, yeah. Or spots, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think he got into some trouble. Maybe crossed some kind of officer. I forget. But uh, basically, he he wound up in Ipswich jail because he almost got into a duel. And I think he tried to shoot this guy and missed or something. He, Anyway, uh, wound up in Ipswich jail, and then he had to move away to avoid confrontation. Wow! But basically, um, when he eventually, when he was living there, he met his wife, future wife Elizabeth Frothingham, who was a rich widow as of recently at the time. So basically, he married into wealth. She was ten years older than him, mm. uh, newly rich, and he bought some land and he set up a leather shop for himself in the from their house basically uh can i just uh insert a little bit about his first one of the first jobs you know where he was the informer of deer dexter is an interesting character in the sense that he's always thinking about what other people how other people perceived him and he wants to be seen as an equal with the likes of his his upper class neighbors remember he's living in a rich area now so the likes of John Hancock and Thomas Russell and people are living just down the road and he wants to be he wants to fit in with the nobility um, and he's married into money so he wants to prove his worthiness by basically making his own money mm. um, so what he, when he saw that everybody else had places in public office and that's how they mm. were respected upper class people yeah as you yeah. say he, he wanted a position on the council yeah, yeah. So he he submitted loads of petitions to the the governing body, mm-hmm. and uh, finally they caved in and they created a post for him called <laughs> the Informer of Deer. Yeah, as and, in the animal. Yes, mm-hmm. and then under the title, uh, Timothy Dexter was required to keep track of the town's uh, fawn population. Although the local records show that, quote, that the last deer had disappeared from the Malden woods 19 years before. Yeah. Oh, exactly. so they just created so a job to yeah, keep him occupied. Just to keep him busy, basically. Yeah, a fake occupation to, that he could yeah. sit on the council, yeah. uh, but not actually do anything or have yeah. him say. Oh, I mean, they, he must have really got on their nerves. Yeah. I mean, I imagine he took it, it, it quite seriously anyway, but when mm. you hear a bit more about him, you'll see why um, people weren't so keen on him at mm. first. Yeah. Um, so basically, uh, he set about then to find what I, what I like to call dexterian ways of multiplying his wealth. Um, and so he was famed kind of for making very, very strange I guess, nonsensical decisions about investments um, that that nobody else believed would create 
return, uh, and they always did. Everything worked out for him. That's why people call him the America's luckiest idiot. But there's obviously there's the argument that he actually knew what he was doing the whole time. So his, his first venture um, was... Uh, so there, there was a currency at the time called the Continental Dollar, uh, and it was the first form of paper currency after the Revolutionary War had happened. Um, and it was created by the Continental Congress, which is an organisation found by the colonies, essentially to counter British rule. So it was a patriot um, foundation. And they, they decided to issue $250 million worth of these Continental bills. But basically, uh, it didn't really work because vendors, people refused to accept the bills because they, they didn't trust the value of them because they were, you know, this newly printed currency. And so it was, it was undermined and devalued. Um, and they issued more and more of these things. And by 1779, basically, it took you to have $40 worth of paper bills just to equal $1 in wealth. So they were they were pretty worthless these things. Um, in fact, they used the phrase "not worth a continental" was a was a way of something saying something yeah. was worthless. Um, that's a, that's a, still said today, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's still a, it's still in use. Is it? And um, so basically, uh, what Hancock and Russell started doing was buying these things back, just in order to boost public confidence in the currency and it, it, they basically saw it as a charitable gesture but obviously uh, Dexter saw them do this and he thought here's a way maybe I could earn some respect because these are the people he admires so he emulates them by 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 buying these bills as well but actually <laughs> rather than doing it as a charitable gesture he spent the entire of his fortunes like the entire of his savings from the leather shop and his wife's savings on just buying this these this worthless currency, um, like probably the biggest gamble you could possibly make for for and he's buying them for like fractions of pennies on the dollar, so he can buy loads of these things, and then um, when the Constitution was revised following Alexander Hamilton's. Um, uh, changes or ratifications in the 1790s continentals they decided could be traded in for treasury bonds at one percent of the face value so dexter basically became instantly rich or astronomically rich because these all of these dollars he bought could and were now treasury bonds so mm -hmm. and also he'd been flipping european currency that he bought for a profit as well um and bear in mind, yeah, I know. The, how the heck did he know? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, they were eventually going to be worth something. Did he? Uh, did, was it a a hunch? Maybe he's from the future. Yeah, maybe. I don't know whether the, these were just crazy gambles. I mean, a lot of what he did was basically acting on advice which neighbours that didn't like him had given but, him maliciously, uh, I, that just happened yes, to. Yeah, um, but I suppose well. He was purchasing this basically worthless currency for hardly any money. I'm guessing he didn't spend much overall then when he bought this currency. Um, no, I think he. I think he. Th this is the thing: is he was he was buying 
I think he spent everything on them because he was buying so many of the things. Okay. But obviously, because they're so mm. cheap, um, he yeah. he'd bought like enormous amounts of yeah them. Um, yeah. yeah. And so all of a sudden, I mean, we were saying yesterday, it's, it's sort of like something from Brewster's Millions. You know, he's making mm. these enormous yeah. gambles just uh for to see if they pay off which they seem to always yeah. they always seem to um so apparently dexter's temperament as a person he was eccentric crude um apparently mm. had a distasteful nature and inability to keep his mouth shut mm. <laughs> in opportune moments um he was someone who probably made a lot of impulsive decisions and yeah. although that he wanted to be accepted by the elites, his his personality and his interests didn't work in his favour. No, not at all. Even after these money making schemes, they they still pre- his attitude prevented him from breaking into, I guess what you could call the upper crust. He he pretty much uh, put this down to the the kind of unwilling, stodgy nature of. Um, the people from from Boston or near Boston, where he's living. So basically, he gathered together his family. I think by this point, he had two kids um, and his belongings and his wife as well, and moved on to the uh, northern coastal town, Newburyport, which is where he became uh, famous for living. And that's where he bought the Dexter House or the the Dexter Mansion, which was an enormous... um, lavishly decorated mansion um, and w- that had lots of land as well, basically bought a whole estate uh, and, and Newburyport was like the ideal town for him to to flourish basically so he had a uh, sea view from the house and uh, with his new fortune he built a fleet of ships um, horses, a coach apparently a coach with his initials engraved on it <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he hired architects this is the best bit actually he hired architects to carve 40 statues giant stone statues of the greatest figures in American contemporary politics and history and also figures from um, Native American history, European history um, antiquity and so on, all the great minds the people that he mm. the people that he admired and right in the middle of, of it all was a statue of himself, <laughs> which just about sums up um, what he was like. And there was an inscription under the statue that read, I am the first in the East, the first in the West, and the greatest philosopher in the Western world. <laughs> so high opinions. And supposedly the, man had never, supposedly the man had never read a book on philosophy yeah i mean possibly even any book i mean he dropped out of school at the age of eight i mean as we'll find out soon he could probably barely read um but Mm. anyway um this this these statues by the way cost him twice the actual house so his but his wife got increasingly embarrassed with all of this uh, and i think she eventually just left him um to live elsewhere and his son moved in. Um, his son was basically a drunk. His daughter was pretty mad. I think she's like clinically insane. And um, at that point, they turned the mansion into a, essentially like a brothel. 
um, <laughs> or a, a party. Basically, it's sort of like an 18th century Playboy mansion mm. um, with drunken antics and yeah, yeah parties, music, um, all sorts of stuff going on. I'd like and to know what a... Uh... Yeah, I'd like to know what a Dexter party was like. I wonder... Well, if, yeah, if I'd were, like to know what kind of uh, music you'd have in an 18th century Playboy mansion. It'd be literally be like a Peter Seymour bar choir after party, wouldn't it? Yeah. Robin Dasser doing Come If You Dare in the corner. Yeah. And Yvonne just flirting oh. with everyone. Yeah, the lasagna. Dexter announced uh, attempts to launch new business ventures in order to multiply his wealth even more. He uh, So he announced that he was breaking into international tr- level trade this time. His neighbours became increasingly dissatisfied with him and they started attempting to give him the worst advice possible like you know advising Mm. him to invest in terrible business ventures that are doomed to fail to try and bankrupt him just so he'd be forced to move because they sort of hated everything that was going on in his house um so the first of these was the recommendation that he sell warming pans. Do you know what warming pans are? They're like... Um, they, they're you put, warm them up and them, then put them in... You, you put hot, hot coals in them and yeah. then put them at the end of your bed to warm. Exactly. Your bed. So they're sake. like, they're used to... <laughs> Can I just say that again? The bells are yeah. <laughs> uh, So you put hot coals in them and then you would put them at the bottom of your bed to keep your bed warm at night in the right. cold winter months. Right. So um basically they were used to warm bed sheets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good invention. Yeah. Sure I mean, we don't have them anymore. Yeah. Well I guess we have sort of central heating and stuff now. Yeah. Well, we do have that little central thing heating doesn't heat your bed sheets. Heating, you know? Hot water bowl. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So they were like frat, flat um uh, not frat, flat brass pans. That's a mouthful. They were flat brass pans. Uh and basically, he it was recommended that he sell them to the West Indies. And, of course, the West mm. Indies has pretty much yeah. hot weather all not, year not round. Not much need for some, you know, warming yeah. pans over there. Yeah, it'd be like <laughs> sending a hot water bottle to the Caribbean. You know, yeah. people don't need yeah. it. So, um, he, anyway, despite that, he decided to buy 42,000 of these things. <laughs> uh, and, obviously, people laughed hysterically at him for doing it. But on his arrival into to the West Indies, when he very quickly realised that they weren't going to be useful, he just rebranded them as ladles because there was a big um, molasses business, you know, like sugar, mm. uh, you know, syrup. Yeah, basically uh, treacle, isn't it? Treacle, yeah, exactly. Um, and they realised that they could use them as ladles um, mm. f- for that on the on the wow. plantation, and he sold them all with a. I think it was, a, it was like a nearly an 80% markup, made a fortune on them. And they were so popular that pretty much everyone bought maybe three or four of them. Mm. Um, and he basically returned with, a, with an even greater fortune than he left with. And then he, yeah. I mean, he took mittens to the Caribbean. Um, Why? Crazy. Why not? Uh, and actually ended up bumping into some merchants... Uh, sailors there who were on their way to Siberia and had just happened to need a ton of mittens so he sold them uh, and then he someone persuaded him to export uh, coal to Newcastle and by the way Newcastle 
there was an enormous coal mine there. It was like the center of mm. one of the centers of coal mining. So why would they need coal? But it turns out when he got there, the miner there was a miner strike. So all of the miners the mines weren't operating. And he sold all of the coal he brought um to basically plug the gap from the miner strike. Mm. Again at a great markup. And yeah. returned with uh one and a half barrels of silver. I must say it's quite satisfying though to see the the malicious intention of his neighbours against mm. Dexter in the end turn against them. So by now he'd actually started to learn the fundamental strategies of marketing and being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So he learned that he could actually ask, you know, inquire what goods were going to be popular. Yeah. Um and buying as much as possible of them and then basically selling them for double the price. But um, they were always weird things. I mean, his choices of goods to sell were always just mm. strange. Didn't he venture into selling whale bones? Yeah, that's right. So um, he later travelled back to Boston and he, he bought such a large quantity of whale bones that he uh, he actually <laughs> managed to monopolise the entire world market of whale bones because he literally bought all of the available stock. <laughs> um, and whalebone corsets became all the rage in 18th century women's fashion. Uh, and he offloaded the whole stock um, for corsets. Also toys as well, uh, children's toys, and even type, typewriters being basically called the plastic of the 1800s. And then, this is probably one of the worst, actually. He was known for sometimes using questionable techniques, um, <laughs> in invert commas, to sell his stock. So he bought wholesale Bibles. He bought them at less than half price. Uh, and again, went back to the West Indies. Um, and he sent out a text, not a phone text, obviously, a, actual text obviously mm. drops a drops a message yeah what's that yeah the west indies <laughs> facebook group yeah the group chat yeah. saying that he's, he literally said all of you must have one bible in every family or if not <laughs> you will go to hell um <laughs> and within a few weeks he'd sold forty seven thousand dollars worth of bibles god that's extreme pretty mm. good um, and by the way, this is when he was, again, we were talking about this earlier, that he started to gather a group of friends who were, shall we say, similar spirits um, where he lived. So there was John P. John was a rejected schoolmaster um, who lost his job for basically teaching kids scientific information without having any knowledge on the subject of science. All right, as well as John, there was... Uh, Madam Hooper, who was another recent uh, rich widow who had become a fortune teller. He had a friend called Molly Pitcher, who actually fired a cannon at the Battle of Monmouth. And the first uh, cannon. Well, yeah, I don't know how she got that. Uh, how she got that gig, but there she we are. Paid someone yeah. off. Uh, yeah, probably. Yeah. And then uh, she was also the mistress of a. Uh, an army officer who had apparently a double set of teeth, whatever that means. God. And, oh, imagine brushing uh, those teeth. Imagine trying to floss. Yeah. You'd have to floss between each row. 
What if you have braces? Do you need two sets of braces? Do you have like a oh, toothbrush yeah. which has two heads on it? Yeah. <laughs> I've still sure. seen something like that yeah. in SpongeBob before. Can you imagine, you know, Timothy Dexter making a good fortune from this? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and yeah, also apparently his main companion was a chicken. Um, oh. But the best of all of Timmy's friends was um, a guy called Jonathan Plummer, who was a fishmonger who um, who he met down the local market, so a seller of fish, guy selling fish out of a wheelbarrow, who apparently was also worked in the pornography business. I don't know what that involved in the 18th 19th century. century. Mm-hmm. Or 18th, 19th century, yeah. But, Just drawings. But he decided to make this guy, this fish seller, the uh, poet laureate of the Dexter estate. So basically, he turned. He asked this guy who was selling fish to be his official poet and write poems about basically how amazing Dexter was. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he found out that poets were crowned with mistletoe, traditionally, mm-hmm. he crowned Jonathan Plummer with crown mm-hmm. of parsley because that's mm-hmm. all he could get his hands on. I mean, um, where else would you go to find your... Poet laureate than down on the fishmongers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, remember the one pound fish guy? He could write a decent lyric. So I've actually got an example here of a poem that was uh, written by the fishmonger. It's actually surprisingly good, uh, if you want to hear it. But this is from the Providence Phoenix, which was a newspaper. And it's December 1804. uh, Talking about... Uh, Well, I'll read you a passage from the newspaper. On Monday last arrived in this town the most noble and illustrious lord, Timothy Dexter, of Newburyport, Massachusetts, who has since his arrival requested the publication of the following stanzas in this day's paper as a humble tribute to the incomprehensible majesty of his name. (laughs) That's a bit extravagant. It's a mutually exclusive... uh, sentence there but whilst they serve as a brilliant specimen of the gifted talents and admirable sublimity of the laureate from whose pen they flowed the virtuoso in genealogies and the worshippers of noble rank and boundless fortune may derive a rich and delicious satisfaction from the subject to which they are devoted here we are advertisement extra of the lord of the celebrated lord dexter lord dexter is a man of fame most celebrated is his name. More precious far than gold that's pure, Lord Dexter live forevermore. His noble house, it shines more bright than Lebanon's most pleasant height. Never was one who stepped therein who wanted to come out again. That's <laughs> my favourite one. His house is filled with sweet perfumes. Rich furniture doth fill his rooms. Inside and out it is adorned, and on the top the eagles formed. His house is white and trimmed with green, for many miles it may be seen. It shines as bright as any star, the fame of it has spread afar. Lord Dexter, thou, whose name alone shines brighter than King George's throne, thy name shall stand in books of fame, and princes shall his name proclaim. Lord Dexter hath a coach beside, in pomp and splendour he doth ride. The horses champ the silver bit, and throw the foam around their feet. The images around him stand, for they were made by his command. Looking to see Lord Dexter come, with fixed eyes they see him home. 
Four lions stand to guard the door, with their mouths open to devour all enemies who do disturb Lord Dexter or his shady grove. Lord Dexter, like King Solomon, hath gold and silver by the ton, and bells to churches he hath given, to worship the great King of Heaven. His mighty deeds, they are so great, he's honoured by both church and state, and when he comes all must give way, to let Lord Dexter bear the sway. When Dexter dies, all things shall droop, Lord East, Lord West, Lord North shall stoop, and then Lord South with pomp shall come, and bear his body to the tomb. His tomb most charming to behold, a thousand sweets it doth unfold. When Dexter dies, shall willows weep, and mourning friends shall fill the street. May Washington immortal stand, may Jefferson by God's command support the right of all mankind, John Adams not a whit behind. America with all your host, Lord Dexter in a bumper toast. May he enjoy his life in peace, and when he's dead, his name not cease. In heaven may he always reign, for there's no sorrow, sin, nor pain. And to the world I leave the rest, for to pronounce Lord Dexter blessed. It's quite good. That's it's not bad. Good. It's not bad, is it? Oh, by the I way, mean, there's... for a guy that sells fish. Yeah, I think there's some yeah. crazy stuff in there. But there's a lot of rhyming couplets in there that don't appear to rhyme, but that's probably yeah. mostly because of mm. the pronunciation of yeah. English being different. Yeah. So he wrote a book which is called A Pickle for the Knowing Ones. That's right, A Pickle for the Knowing a pickle. Ones. A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, or Plain mm. Truths in a Homespun Dress. I prefer yes. Pickle. So he, despite his lack of penmanship, he basically wanted to immortalise his legacy mm. by writing his own, I, I guess, sort of a memoir of his life. Um, and it became what is now known as Dexter's Masterwork. It's a 24-page book written in 1802. And it basically talks about a whole, a whole range of things, mostly his criticism of the Pope and the clergy, politicians, and probably most of all his wife, um, <laughs> uh, the book at the time was by critics was received pretty badly. I mean, they they actually called it trash. I didn't know people called things trash in the in the nineteenth century, but they said it was trash, yeah. laden with random capitalization. By the way, this is people say random capitalization, but it's actually not. I'll get into that. We'll in get minute. to your theory on that later. Yeah, we will indeed. <laughs> and it's got nonsensical grammar. Uh, and sentence structure mm. is devoid entirely of punctuation, basically jumbled, incomprehensible writing. Mm. Um, he signs oh. off every paragraph with his name. There's a yeah. lot of very strange. I'll just read the first few lines of this. I'm the first lord in the United States of America, now of Newburyport. It is the voice of the people, and I can't help it, and so let it go. Now as I must be lord there, will follow many more lords pretty soon for it don't hurt a cat nor the mouse nor the sun nor the water nor the ear then go on all is easy now bonds broken all is well all in love now i could go on yeah but basically so, it, it's a bit like reading a, a 19th century james yeah. joyce i mean yes, that poem exactly, was like yeah. reading you know dr yeah. seuss like the cat so in the hat this the is reason, not as easy <laughs> Exactly. So the reason it might have sounded very strange when I was reading that is because there's no punctuation. So it's if you're reading it for the first time, it's hard to know how to articulate it. 
this was this is uh, this is one of my favorite passages. So he's talking about his house um, and people's treatment of him as a person. This is the best one of the best uh, similes ever written. I was to make my enemies grin in time, like a cat over a hot pudding, <laughs> and go away and hang their heads down like a dog been after sheep guilty. Stop. See, I am afraid I write too harsh. He he realised that when Nobleman released a book that was um, something of a memoir uh, or an autobiography, they would give free copies out as gifts to increase their readership rather than selling them. So he went out just onto the street, uh, onto the roadside, handing out random copies of his book. And people got talking and very quickly realised that in a way, it was kind of its own unique form of uh, genius. And it became so popular. Uh, and the demand was so high that he printed a second edition. So his response to the criticism of lack of punctuation in the book was an extra page at the end with 13 lines purely just of punctuation marks. Uh, and there's an instruction to the reader at the bottom saying that the reader should pepper and salt them as they please, i.e. <laughs> there's your full stop so you can put them where you want. <laughs> uh, basically, stick it where the sun don't shine. Um, the author, Irving Wallace, um, much later, described it as an egotistical, opinionated, coarse defence of Dexter by Dexter against all enemies who were anti-Dexter. My mum, my actually, who's read quite a lot into it. She's a TA who deals with a lot of special needs students and she's read, because my brother is, is dyslexic and dyspraxic and she's read a lot into the subject. She's convinced, a lot of people claim in this that Dexter was basically just ignorant or an idiot or uneducated and couldn't spell. But my mum's convinced that he had some kind of severe form of dyslexia because the book bears all the hallmarks of um, mm. someone who's dyslexic like it's actually consistent capitalization of words i.e. all generally all words beginning with an L a capital or a C or a D which could be linked to his the spelling of his name or what he was taught how the way he was taught to write but also the spelling is quite phonetic and it it bears sort of all the classic examples of misspelling that dyslexic people make so as I was saying before, De Dexter is was always worried about his peers' respect for him. Uh, and he put that to the ultimate test when he decided to fake his own death. <laughs> um, so he prepared for a grand, lavish funeral celebration. Um, he built a big tomb in the basement of his, his summer house. Uh, he hired the best woods woodworker best cabinet maker in the whole of massachusetts to handcraft a coffin from the finest mahogany um, so they uh, even practiced sleeping in it uh he, he got his most trusted servants to help him mm. organize a fake funeral and send out the invites yeah. um he got his family in on it so his kids and his wife knew um and he told them to basically act sad uh, and his he... reason, and his reasoning for faking his own funeral was just to see how many people would turn up. Yeah, and to see how people would react, basically. Um, wow, that's that's. I mean, a, he actually good... he actually had a fallout with his wife because she didn't look sad enough. <laughs> that's another story. But yeah, basically, it turns out three thousand people turned up to his wow. funeral. Wow. 
that's, that's uh, so a good they had a big big party free alcohol exotic liquors and wine with, mm. with what if they all just went for the free bar it's quite possible well, um, quite possible but yeah. at the same time then they just look bad right so he won mm. he wins either way but he, so he apparently he was watching this from under the floorboards or going <laughs> Um, it's like a scene from Pirates Just of the Caribbean. Poking up the floorboards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you um, put one of those like periscope things that like. Oh yeah, just like. Looks <laughs> around. Well, he actually be- be- began calling his wife a ghost after that. So he d- he sort of wanted to disassociate with her. So he told people that she was dead and that the woman walking around the house was her ghost haunting him. Oh, okay. Uh, he d- he basically refused to acknowledge her existence. Um, so they fell out. They they, they separated. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of hard. It seems like a strange relationship, yeah. but um, mm. yeah, I think maybe there was a yeah there was a something weird going on. Yeah, um, when he passed away, he did make a very generous will to yeah, all of right. his close family. Out the the estate between his friends, family, you know, kids, his wife, and so mm. on. Um, and this was in 1806 that he died, October of 1806, at 59, yeah, the age of 59. Uh, uh, just a few years after publishing The Pickle for the Knowing Ones. Um, wow. And yeah, he d- I mean, he died for real, by the way, this time. This, this time this for real. <laughs> fake death. Um, and uh, so, yeah, later, bio- bio- biographer Samuel Knapp, who wrote a biography about him, wrote <laughs> that Dexter had a way of his own which he disdained to copy or suffer to be copied. In short, he was a living exception to all general rules and a living contradiction to all maxims of human wisdom. Well, so, so his statues outside his house were, were damaged in a storm and sold at auction. Uh, mm. And the ones that weren't sold were burned in 1815. The house eventually became, the ta- became a tavern um, and then it changed owners. I think it's now a hotel or was a hotel for a while. It actually was set on fire by painters. Um, <laughs> they decided it would be a good idea to remove paint by burning it. Um, and it was eventually uh, taken on board by the preservation of New England architecture, who were like a historical yeah, right. a society devoted to re- yeah. reconstituting historical yeah. architecture. And they rebuilt the mansion. Um, so uh, it's there today. You can see the the Timothy Dexter house. The statue is obviously no longer there. Wow. Um, so, for those interested, you can go to www.lordtimothydexter.com yeah. to read his eccentric writings. And you can also see a biography on there. Although I'm quite convinced that the people running that website are slightly as nutty as he was. Most likely, yeah. Probably distant, <laughs> distant relations. So thank you for joining us this week on The Mockery Cushion. If you liked what you heard, give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram. And follow us on Twitter. Or you can listen to our previous episodes on YouTube as well. So it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. the only creatures that have necks no insects have necks like an ant or a grasshopper or a I think I think I'm pretty sure humans are the only creatures that have necks no giraffes they're mammals oh yeah giraffes
it doesn't really count as a neck, does it? It's not a neck, is it, really? I mean, you know, it's just an extendable appendage. Oh, yeah.